we're going to be finishing up our study of the ordinances. It's going to be fairly quick today, but we're going to be considering the Lord's Supper. Uh, I imagine that for many of us, if you've grown up in more of kind of a low church evangelicalism, what I mean by that is it typically doesn't have much of a, of a by way of a thoughtful liturgy. Um, it typically is going to have a maybe a low view of the ordinances, baptism, Lord's Supper, whatever it may be. Uh, then when it comes to Lord's Supper, you probably thought uh, for the most part that it's merely a memory. It's just something that we do to remember what Christ did once upon a time. Now, we've addressed this just a couple of weeks ago, or la rather last week, but we're going to look at it in more detail today. What exactly is the Lord's Supper? It is a memory, and in that way, we were right, but, uh, but it's more than a memory. That's what I hope to establish. What I want to do as we get started is I want to pray, but then I want to read the relevant text. There's really just two, three relevant texts um, that are kind of, these are the texts that we want to hang our hats on as we go into the confession and consider what it says. Uh, so if you would, pray with me, and then we'll start studying together. Father, I thank you for this time together that you've given us to think about your word and how we might rightly summarize it for our edification and for the good of our brothers and sisters as we aim to faithfully follow you in this life. Help us now, I pray. Help me to teach with clarity from your word that it might be spiritually beneficial. Help those who are here and those who are online to receive it uh, by faith that they would be encouraged by it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to start in the book of Matthew. We can go all the way back to Old Testament foundations, but we're not going to do that tonight for the lack of time, Matthew chapter 26, that here we are on the Passover, and Jesus, what we have is not reenacting the Passover, uh, not even merely transforming the Passover, but the Passover is about to, as it were, pass away. Uh, Christ is going to his death. He is our Passover lamb. Once the substance has come, the shadows flee, and so the Passover is now done away with. Christ is our Passover, and in the place of the Passover, that old covenant institution whereby Israel remembered God's powerful redeeming work, taking them from Egypt through the blood of a spotless lamb, rescuing their firstborn sons, now uh, Christ is taking it, not merely reinterpreting it, He's interpreting the Passover in light of himself. He's fulfilling it and then instituting something altogether new. And that's what we see in Matthew 26. Look at this. Beginning of verse 26. Now, as they were eating, they speaking of he and the disciples, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's a handful of things that are interesting. Number one, 
the bread and the wine or the cup cannot literally be the body of Christ because Christ is sitting with the disciples. They signify something, and that's something we need to keep in mind. Secondly, notice it points to something, not merely his atoning work on the cross, but it also points us forward as a kind of bond or a pledge, pointing to that day when he says, verse 29, I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Why is the fruit of the vine so important? The fruit of the vine is an image all throughout the Bible that has a whole lot of eschatological freight. When I say eschatological, I mean it has a whole lot of end of the ages freight. So you remember the first miracle that Jesus did. What did he do? He turned water into wine. And in so doing, he is fulfilling, in a sense, the very promise that was established uh, to Judah, as the oracle, as Israel spoke, the oracle over Judah. Um, uh, let's just go back and look at it. Genesis chapter 49. This is what he says. Beginning in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. Now that image of washing his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes is not talking about uh, him stamping out the wine press of God's fury. It's talking about the joy and jubilation and celebration that comes in his consummated kingdom. And so when, he come, when Jesus, the promised Davidic king from the line of Judah, comes, changes water into wine, it has eschatological meaning that that kingdom, which will be consummated at the end of the age, is being inaugurated in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same imagery is here in Matthew 26. The fruit of the vine that he's referring to is the consummation of his kingdom. It's the jubilant joy and celebration that comes from all of the abundance of his kingdom. And he looks forward to that day when his kingdom is consummated. So Matthew 26 is a first key text. But then we have Matthew 26 repeated by the Apostle Paul, established on the basis of apostolic authority, not merely for the apostles on that Passover day, but for all churches everywhere. And we see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, we're not going to read the entire chapter, though you could begin in verse 17 and go all the way to the end of the chapter, but we're just going to begin in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There in verse 26, Paul offers his interpretation. He, he shows, he, he echoes the Lord's words of drinking from the choice vine one day in his consummated kingdom. We look forward to doing so upon his return in the new creation. But he does add two phrases, repeats it twice, one phrase repeated twice here that we didn't read in Matthew 26. And on apostolic authority, he's delivering what the risen Lord gave to him through divine revelation. That is that this is something that we do in perpetuity in remembrance of Christ. That, in, that until Christ comes again, we recall his work, both in his perfect life, especially on his atoning death on a cross and of his here implied resurrection. A couple of notes. First of all, notice that the body is for us, but the blood is for the covenant. He doesn't say, this is my body, which is for you. This is my blood, which is for you. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And so it starts from the lesser to the greater. The body is for you. He became a man for us. He suffered and died for us. But all of the blessings and the benefits of salvation that would be available by way of the new covenant promises, Jeremiah 31 and, and, and otherwise, that is all purchased by the blood of Christ and now made available and applied by the Holy Spirit in the context of the new covenant. So his blood is for the covenant. The covenant is for the giving of all the blessings and benefits of salvation to those who become members of that covenant, namely God's elect. That's why it's called the covenant of grace. But there's something more still happening when we come to the Lord's Supper. It's not merely a remembrance. It is also a participation. We're participating in something. Go back one chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're just kind of doing a flyover of key passages. We looked at Matthew 26, 1 Corinthians 11. Now we're in 1 Corinthians 10, beginning all the way up at the top. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Or they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. Now, here's what's interesting. In one sense, he's talking about physical things to Israel in the wilderness, isn't he? What is the food that they ate that was, that was provided to them by God? Well, it was manna from heaven, wasn't it? It was, in a sense, the bread of life to them. Not only that, but they were also given water to drink from a rock. But here he says that rock wasn't just in one place. That rock followed them because in reality, in eating these things by faith and all of the promises contained in them as shadows and types of greater things to come, it says the rock followed them and the rock was Christ. So to say that they all ate of the same spiritual food is to say that they ate of Christ in a sense by faith that they all drank from the same spiritual drink, is that they drank and were nourished and strengthened by Christ by faith. All of that language down in verse 14 is meant to inform the way that we understand this language of participation. Verse 15, I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a participation, a fellowship, a koinonia, 
in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, is it not a koinonia, a participation, a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Verse 21, you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This language of participation, of fellowship in the body and blood of Christ is painting an image that we are so spiritually united to the body and the blood of Christ, to the very person of Christ himself, though he is yet resurrected and ascended and exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high, even now we are, though separated by space, spiritually united through the Holy Spirit to Christ, such that we enjoy all of the blessings and the benefits of his life. We're going to see in just a minute, Colossians chapter 3, that when Christ, your life, appears, he is our life. And so what happens then when we come to the cup and to the loaf? The answer is, is that we participate in something. Something unique and special is happening. Something similar to what we see in verses 1 through 3 in our eating and drinking, we are strengthened. That by faith we feed on Christ as he meets with us and follows us and leads us and strengthens us for our time in the wilderness until he brings us into the promised land once and for all. All of this language, all of these pictures are meant to kind of inform the way that we're thinking about the Lord's Supper. And I fear that quite often this language is amiss in many churches that maybe casually pass the plate down the aisles and, and there's not careful fencing of the table and, and perhaps maybe even not careful teaching. All of us can grow. Our churches can grow and get better at this. And one way that the confession helps us do this is by summarizing what faithful Christians across the centuries particularly within the Reformed tradition, have understood the Lord's Supper to mean. We're going to see a number of things in the chapter, chapter 30. We're going to see the case for the Lord's Supper positively stated in its institution and defining it, as well as how to observe it and its benefits. But we're also going to see it negatively defined. The chapter is polemical in a way. A, po a polemic is a strong argument against something, and namely, what they're doing is distinguishing their doctrine of the Lord's Supper over and against the Roman heresy of transubstantiation. And so, that's going to be in our chapter tonight, that the Reformed or biblical doctrine of the Lord's Supper is going to help us shed light on the, on the heresy of transubstantiation. And the heresy of transubstantiation then is going to help us appreciate the spiritual nature of the Lord's Supper as it's been instituted by Christ. If you look at your chapter on your sheet, we're going to look at six main things across eight paragraphs. First of all, in paragraph one, we're going to see the Supper's institution. Then, in paragraph 2, we'll see the Supper's definition. In paragraphs 3 and 4, we'll see the Supper's observation. Then, in paragraphs 5 and 6, I ran out of T-I-O-N words. We see the significance of the Supper. In paragraph 7, the benefit of the Supper. And in, in paragraph 8, the boundaries of the Supper. Now, I'm going to lead us through this. I actually have to leave a little bit early today to go pick up my son. 
Um, the elders are going to linger a little bit. Adam's going to lead in some Q&A. Uh, so I trust that'll be a profitable time. So I'm going to teach through the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to invite Adam to come up and lead the discussion. Okay? Let's consider paragraph one, the institution of the supper. Look at that opening phrase. The supper of the Lord Jesus was instituted by him on the same night that he was betrayed. Think Matthew 26. We just looked at that. It's to be observed in his churches to the end of the age. The Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, is delivering to us what the Lord Jesus delivered to him. So the Lord's Supper is instituted by the Lord Jesus... It's not a renewal or a transformation of the Passover meal. It is something altogether new, a new law posited in the context of a new covenant for all of his churches, that is, all of the visible manifestations of his kingdom in this world until he comes again at the end of the age. But then it goes on and it, and it, and it describes the many purposes of the supper. It says, as a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself and his death, it is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers and all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. Six things it outlines in the second part of this paragraph. It's first of all to remind us of what specifically? Of the death of Christ and of the new covenant that he's ratified by the shedding of his blood, of his own incarnation, of, of his bodily obedience to Christ and or to his Father in our place, of his active obedience that righteousness that's imputed to us by faith, all of that comes to mind when we come to the supper. But it's not only a remembrance, it's also a portrayal, a display of a sacrifice of himself. I would take, for instance, the second commandment to prohibit not only the making of, of any image of God, let's say, for instance, birds and, and uh, creeping things on the ground, as we see in Romans chapter 1, that you end up making... The, uh, the creation into the image of the invisible creator, but I would take that also to stretch as far as visible images of Christ. Now, that's a debate beyond our time today. I'll leave that for the Q&A with Adam. Uh, but just to say briefly, first of all, there is no physical description of the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere in the New Testament. And any time we make visible representations of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we only consider him as we imagine him in his humiliation, rather than in his exaltation, which is where he is now, but that ends up shaping our imaginations in such a way that we do not now behold Christ as he is. It's a dangerous thing to do. We need to tread carefully. But Christ has not left us without a picture of himself. Though we have no physical description, he's given us something to look at to say, here's where you can see me. And the answer is at the Lord's Supper. Here's where you can see my body. Here's where you can see the, my shed blood and its benefits, beholding all of these things by faith. It's to portray the sacrifice of himself in his death. Not only that, it's for the confirmation of faith in believers. That is to say, when we come to the Lord's Supper and we partake of the elements, we are confirmed, reassured that we belong to Christ, 
And he strengthens our faith in this regard. Not only that, but he sanctifies us. He nourishes us. He helps us to grow in the same way that, that, uh, that we grow and are strengthened by eating good food and good meals in our own lives. So the same is true spiritually, that when the word and sacrament and prayer all come together, it nourishes us. It strengthens us and helps us grow. Not only that, but it compels us. It says here to their further engagement in and to all the duties we owe to God, that it commits us to things. What does it commit us to in particular? Well, as we've just recently seen, above all, it commits us to love, to love as Christ is loved, and specifically to love those who are in our churches and all those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Finally, it's a bond and a pledge of our communion with Christ. It's a promise, so to speak, a guarantee that one day we're going to give up this meal for a much better meal with jubilant joy and a new creation where no corrupt thing can be found. And so it anticipates not just looking back at what Christ has done, but it looks forward to his coming and to our feasting with him. That's why, for instance, I think we're mistaken if we come to Lord's Supper and we do it as kind of like a dirge, head down, really slow, almost like we're at a funeral. Sometimes our Lord's Supper services are like funerals. Everybody's so sad. And I go, this is Christ is risen and he's reigning and we're enjoying fellowship with him. He's meeting us at his table. And are we going to come to his table and just be like, hey, Jesus, good to be with you again right? It's a celebration. It's something that anticipates something even greater that he's promised to us, that we get to share in together. And so we want to come and, and come not just thoughtfully, though that's true, mindfully, we want to evaluate ourselves, but we want to appreciate it as a celebration as well, because God has made us great promises in the gospel. But now in chapter 2, we're going to move from the institution of the supper to the definition of the supper. First of all, notice it's negatively defined. It says, in this ordinance, Christ is not offered up to his Father, nor in any real sacrifice made at all for the remission of sin of the living or of the dead. We need to keep in mind, Hebrews 9, that Christ has died once for all to re-crucify Christ or to hold anything other than the very body and blood of Christ offered once and for all for sinners is to um, disregard altogether Christ's atonement as if he died for no reason. And so it is, it is to say, to affirm those things, is to say that there is something insufficient about the once-for-all atoning work of Christ. And so in this way, it's negatively defined. Here's what it's not. It is not offering, uh, it is not uh, a real sacrifice made for the remission of sin. Christ has already done that. Nor is it Christ being offered to his father as in the Roman mass. No, it's significant. It's a sign. That's why they positively define it in this way. It's only a memorial of the one offering Christ made, get that key phrase, one offering Christ made of himself on the cross once for all. It is also a spiritual offering 
of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. If you have an older translation, it says it's a spiritual oblation. It's the language of worship, right? That would be Old Covenant or Old Testament language. It's an act of worship, but it's a spiritual act of worship that physically speaking, nothing is happening at the Lord's Supper that does anything for the remission of our sins or that we are in some real way re-crucifying Christ. No, rather spiritually, we remember Christ and what he did once for all, and we worship him in, in, in spirit and in truth centered on Christ because we belong to him. And so naturally, all of this speaks against the Roman mass. You see at the end of the paragraph, thus the Roman Catholic sacrifice of the mass, as they call it, is utterly detestable and detracts from Christ's own sacrifice, which is the only propitiation for all the sins of the elect. And to this day, they would still hold that the Mass holds out grace that, in a sense, Christ is being crucified visibly again before those who are present, such that to receive these elements is to receive the very grace of God infused into your very being by which you might be able to live a righteous life under justification at the end of the age. It undermines assurance. It's contrary to the gospel. It is a gospel contrary to that which was delivered to us by the apostles, and it is to be anathematized. Now, some of you might say, well, so does that mean there's no Christians in the Roman Catholic Church? I would argue that the Lord knows all those who belong to him. And if they are Christians, born again, called by God, believing in the gospel, then they have believed a gospel that is contrary to the very one that is preached and figured in the mass. They've done so contrary to the heresies therein. And so are there Christians in the Roman Catholic Church? There very well, very well might be. God knows. If they are, it's not because they were saved by the mass. It's because their sins were forgiven once and for all in the context of a new covenant by faith alone in Christ through the true gospel being preached to them. So here it's polemical that what we see in the Lord's Supper, what we do, what we participate in is not what happens in the Roman church down the street. It's spiritual in nature. Here we see in paragraphs 3 and 4 now, then what do we do? What is the observation of the supper? What should that look like? It says, in this ordinance, the Lord Jesus has appointed his ministers to pray and to bless, just as Jesus did in Matthew 26, the elements of the bread and the wine, and in this way to set them apart from common to holy use. How does it go from just being bread and wine or bread and the fruit of the vine to being something that in that moment with the church gathered becomes something more than bread or wine. It's by the blessing and the consecration of those things. And in this way, set them apart from a common to a holy use. They are to take and break bread, take the cup, and give both to the communicants while also participating themselves. Two things that we see here, consecration, as we just noticed, as well as administration, and a few things stand out. First of all, they're to give the communicants both the bread and the cup, and this is contrary to the Roman church that gives only the bread, but the priests take the cup. No, both are to be given to all of Christ's people. Not only that, 
but the priest does not, or, the, or those who are administering it, do not enjoy any part of the supper separate from the whole body, as our Roman neighbors do. Rather, those who administrate it take it as one who is part of the whole body. And so it's rejecting, it's a big word, a sacerdotalism, that the grace of God is now given to his people in a mediated fashion through a priesthood. No, we're all priests unto God, and we all enjoy it together, unmediated access to God through Christ. Secondly, notice its wrong observation in paragraph 4, denying the cup to the people as we just mentioned, as our Roman neighbors do, worshiping the elements, lifting them up, that is, carrying high the hosts, as they do in the Roman church, or carrying them around for adoration or reserving them for some pretended religious use. They are all contrary to the nature of this ordinance and the institution of Christ. That is not what Christ has commanded us to do. It is the teachings and the commandments of men, Matthew 15, 9, and it is to worship it in any way, to give it any kind of adoration that belongs to God alone, as if the person and the work and the very grace of God is found in that thing and not in God through Christ himself is a violation of the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 5. And so this is a serious, serious issue. It has nothing, has to do with nothing less than the true worship of the true God as he's instituted. Remember what we said in and when we studied chapter 22 together, God doesn't merely care that he's worshipped. He also cares how he's worshipped. And because of that, he's not left us without instructions. And our job, insofar as we're able, with his help, is to hug those instructions in the scriptures as tightly as we can. That's what we just saw in Matthew 26 and in 1 Corinthians 11. But what's the significance of the supper? We see that now in paragraphs 5 and 6. We see, for instance, in paragraph 5, the elements are defined. The outward elements in this ordinance, properly set apart for use, ordained by Christ, have such a relationship to Christ crucified that they are sometimes called, truly, though figuratively, by the names of the things they represent, that is, the body and the blood of Christ. However, in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. Notice a couple of things. First of all, it's spiritually significant. It is a physical sign towards spiritual realities in which we participate. And yet, through the consecration of the bread and the cup, those physical elements do not all of a sudden become spiritually transformed. They don't undergo a kind of molecular transformation to actually become the body and the blood of Christ. That would have been nonsensical to the disciples sitting with Christ at the Last Supper. Christ in the flesh, holding up his flesh and his blood. It's against common sense, which is what they just said earlier, what they'll say here in a little bit, rather. And so, though they remain physically unchanged, they are spiritually significant. Water is water until it's used in baptism, and then it becomes spiritually significant. 
Bread and the fruit of the vine is just bread and the fruit of the vine until it's consecrated according to the institution of Christ in a particular context for a particular people for spiritual use. Then it becomes spiritually significant. That's the point of paragraph 5. And then it's going to press on in paragraph 6 by adjourning us to, to avoid a certain false doctrine, which we've already begun to address. The doctrine, commonly called transubstantiation, teaches that the substance of the bread and the wine, that is, the, the breadness of the bread and the, and the wineness of the wine, what makes those things those things, is changed into the substance of Christ's body and blood by the consecration of a priest or some other way. This doctrine is hostile not only to Scripture, but as I just mentioned, also to common sense and reason. The disciples would have never interpreted it that way. It destroys the nature of the ordinance, and it has been and is the cause of many kinds of superstitious and gross idolatries. Notice that it defines transubstantiation, first of all, as the changing of the substance of the elements into the actual physical body and blood of Christ, Secondly, it's dangerous in these ways, namely that it gives rise to various kinds of superstitions and of gross idolatries. That is, it leads us into false worship and away from the true worship of the true God, putting our hope in something other than Christ as he is, where he is. Well, finally... We move on to paragraphs 7 and 8, the benefit and the boundaries of the supper. We're going to see a couple of things in paragraph 7, proper participation, first of all, and then spiritual presence, and I want to camp out there for just a moment. Concerning proper participation, the confession reads, worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the physical elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and the blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. Consider a couple of things. Just go to Ephesians 1 with me. We can't spend a whole lot of time here, but just enough to move the furniture into the house. It might assist you in some further study on your own. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, why are the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? Because that's where Christ is seated. And how are we blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Ephesians chapter 2, because we've been seated with Christ. See what it says here? God being rich in mercy, chapter 2, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. Notice he uses the language not in Christ, not merely by Christ, but with Christ. By grace you have been saved 
and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How is it that we who have not yet been raised have been raised? How is it that those of us who are sitting here at 102 Maple, seated in tan cushy chairs, are also simultaneously seated with Christ? And the answer is that we've been spiritually united to Christ. We're united to Him. He is our life. That's Paul's point in Colossians chapter 3. Go to your right a little bit more. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Sound familiar? That's what we just saw in Ephesians, isn't it? Christ is there. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Why? Because the things that are above are immutable, unchanging, eternal. It's where Christ is, not the things that are on earth, which are transient and sinful and corrupted. For you have died. You who are still yet living have, spiritually speaking, died. And spiritually speaking, your life is hidden with Christ in God. There's a kind of life that you have in Christ that cannot be seen in the same way that your life physically on this earth can be seen. It is hidden in Christ. Seat, you're seated where he's seated, which is why it says, chapter 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do you see how closely our life is tethered to the life of Christ? Our exaltation is connected to the exaltation of Christ. How closely we, to use a word that we just saw in 1 Corinthians 10, participate in him. Look at that chapter one more time, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. How is it then? What, what is one of the means of grace whereby God helps us to enjoy, to grow in, to experience, to be nourished by the blessings and the benefits that are associated with the life that we have in Christ, with those heavenly blessings that we enjoy in Christ that are ours in the heavenly places. How do heavenly blessings get communicated to us on earth across time and space in such a way that we enjoy them and grow in them and feed on Christ by faith. The cup of the blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, a participation of fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now understand what the Apostle Paul is saying. When he's talking about the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, he's not speaking theoretically. He is talking about the actual body of Christ and the actual blood of Christ the very real blood that secured for us our redemption and the body which has now been exalted to the right hand of majesty on high. He's not talking about a theoretical, invisible, bodiless Christ. He's talking about the risen, resurrected, exalted, and now reigning Christ. You participate in Him. You've been seated with Him. All the blessings of His life in the heavenly places are yours in Him. 
And when you come to the Lord's Supper, to enjoy this supper is to participate here on earth of those blessings that are true of you that you possess in heaven in the risen, resurrected, and exalted Christ. This is what the confession is trying to summarize when it refers to spiritual presence, that Christ, through his Holy Spirit, manages in a mysterious way to bridge the gap between time and space and fellowship with his people to dine with us, to feed us, and to strengthen us as his word accompanies his supper in the gathered church. What do you say where two or three of you are gathered? There I will be with you. Whenever the church gathers, I'm with you. Well, what is one of the ways that Christ is with us? It's at the supper where we participate in his body in a real way and in the benefits of his blood in a real way. Consider, this is a helpful little book that you might want to pick up, Richard Barcellos, The Lord's Supper as a Means of Grace, More Than a Memory. Really, really helpful. I just want to read something to you out of this. He says, Redemption accomplished means blessings for those redeemed. Redemption benefits the redeemed in this life and the life to come, which is just say, the benefits of redemption are not just future, they're also present. The benefits of redemption through Christ's blood are brought to the souls of elect sinners. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The benefits of Christ's blood and body, we just saw that in 1 Corinthians 10, are spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, 3, remember that? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, brought to souls by the Spirit of Christ. Through the Lord's Supper, communion with Christ and the benefits of his blood and body take place. This communion is affected by the Holy Spirit, the bearer of blessings from the Father, because of the work of the Son, this is how the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Sinclair Ferguson, he quotes by saying, in the supper, the Spirit comes to, quote, close the gap, as it were, between Christ in heaven and the believer on earth, and to give communion with the exalted Savior. Barcellus continues, through the Lord's Supper, God does something. As Bovink says, of primary importance in the Lord's Supper is what God does, not what we do. The Lord's Supper is above all a gift from God, a benefit of Christ, a means of communicating His grace, of sharing it with us. Grace from Christ in heaven is communicated to believers on earth by the Holy Spirit through the Lord's Supper, and the Holy Spirit takes the things of the exalted Christ and discloses them to believers. He brings purchased blessings, special delivery to souls from the Lord Christ. Ephesians 1.3 supplies us with the theological mechanics, which are assumed by 1 Corinthians 10.6. When we take the supper, it's the Spirit of Christ who brings the benefits of Christ to the people of Christ. Praise God from, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He's just summarizing what Calvin taught from Scripture centuries earlier. Here's what Calvin says concerning the spiritual presence of Christ's body in the supper. Just follow along with me. To summarize, he says, Our souls are fed by the flesh and blood of Christ, 
in the same way that bread and wine keep and sustain physical life. For the analogy of the sign applies only if souls find their nourishment in Christ, which cannot happen unless Christ truly grows into one with us and refreshes us by eating of his flesh and the drinking of his blood, that Christ would be our life. That's what he's saying, that Christ would be our life. Even though it seems unbelievable that Christ's flesh separated from us by such a great distance, he's in heaven and we're on earth, penetrates to us so that it becomes our food, spiritually speaking. Let us remember how far the secret power of the Holy Spirit towers above all our senses and how foolish it is to wish to measure his immeasurableness by our measure. What then our mind does not comprehend, let faith conceive that the Spirit truly unites things separated in space. We are not yet physically where Christ is physically now, but the Spirit unites us to Him, and in so doing, helps us to participate in all of the blessings and the benefits that are His. He is our life. He continues, Now that sacred partaking of His flesh and blood by which Christ pours His life into us, as if it penetrated into our bones and marrow, He also testifies and seals in the supper, not by presenting a vain and an empty sign, but by manifesting there the effectiveness of His Spirit to fulfill what He promises. Truly, He offers and shows the reality there signified to all who sit at that spiritual banquet. Although it's received with benefit by believers alone who accept such great generosity with true faith and gratefulness of heart. And so in this manner, the apostle said, the bread which we break is a participation in the body of Christ. The cup which we consecrate to this by word and prayers is a participation in his blood. There's no reason for anyone to object that this is a figurative expression by which the name of the thing signified is given to the sign. I indeed admit that the breaking of bread is a symbol. It is not the thing itself. It's not actually Christ's physical body. But having admitted this, we shall nevertheless duly infer that by showing of the symbol, the thing itself is also shown. For unless a man means to call God a deceiver, he would never dare assert that an empty symbol is set forth by him. Does that make sense? To set forth a sign and have the sign signify nothing in reality is a lie. The only way for the sign to be a true sign, to seal the promises of God to his people in such a way, is for the sign to be connected to the thing signified in reality, and the thing signified is the exalted person of Christ, who now reigns bodily at the right hand of majesty on high, but is separated from us physically by space. That's what he's saying. Therefore, he, can, he concludes, if the Lord truly represents the participation in his body through the breaking of bread, there ought not to be the least doubt that he truly presents and shows his body. And the godly ought by all means to keep this rule whenever they see symbols appointed by the Lord, to think and be persuaded that the truth of the thing signified is surely present there. For why would the Lord put in your hand the symbol of his body except to assure you of a true participation in it? 
But if it is true that a visible sign is given us to seal the gift of the thing invisible, when we have received the symbol of the body, let us no less surely trust that the body itself is also given to us. He's saying that in the sign of the, of the bread and the cup, though it's just a sign, a sign has to be tethered to the thing signified, such that when we see the sign, that is of the, of the bread and of the fruit of the vine, then we are also, spiritually speaking, by faith in a sense, seeing in a very real and true way the body and the blood of Christ risen and exalted for us, who is right now our life, with whom we are right now seated in the heavenly places, and in whom we now enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Does that make sense? In some ways, it doesn't. But then I think if all of the working of the Holy Spirit in uniting us to Christ makes sense, uh, then we probably don't have it right. There's a sense in which there's an infinitude to the work of the Spirit in uniting us to, to Christ in heaven while we're yet on earth so that we might enjoy all of the blessings and the benefits of Christ. That is mysterious. That's why it's often referred to as a mysterious communion. That is the Lord's Supper. Well, if that's true, if the Lord's Supper signifies ultimately a communion between us and Christ, whereby we participate in its benefits, then it only makes sense then that Christians alone can participate in the Lord's Supper. It's of no benefit to non-Christians. In fact, it may even be to their detriment, according to 1 Corinthians 11. And that's the point of the final paragraph. It addresses, first of all, unworthy partakers, and secondly, unholy partaking. And in both of these ways, we see the boundaries of the supper. All ignorant and ungodly people are unfit to enjoy communion with Christ and are thus unworthy of the Lord's table. As long as they remain in this condition, they cannot partake of these holy mysteries or be admitted to the Lord's table without committing a great sin against Christ because it's presumptuous. All those who receive the supper unworthily are guilty, this is just quoting 1 Corinthians 11, of the body and the blood of the Lord, eating and drinking judgment on themselves. So they take at least one meeting of that phrase in 1 Corinthians 11 that we've already read. The, the eating and the drinking of judgment on yourselves is to so partake in the Lord's supper as one who has not ultimately been brought by God to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's to assure yourself that it's something that you're not. And that false assurance will take you all the way to judgment day where the Lord Jesus Christ will look at you and you'll say, did I not take the Lord's Supper? And you'll say, I knew you not. That it blinded you to the reality of your need for the gospel. And so it is an ordinance for the church only and as we've already talked about before, it's a sign of the church's authority by where we admit new members to enjoy the supper with us and, when necessary, due to ongoing unrepentant sin, excommunion unrepentant members, such that to be put out of the church is to have that symbolized by not eating with such a one, 1 Corinthians 5. We don't partake the Lord's Supper with them because for them to do so, apart from repentance in Christ, that repentance on the life leading to salvation would be to eat and drink judgment. And so it is a loving thing to fence unrepentant sinners put out of the church from the Lord's Supper. It is for the good of their soul. 
that through sorrow they might be led to repentance, 2 Corinthians 2.2, 2, and then be brought back into the church through the common suffrage of its members, that they may not be crushed by grief. And so we have the boundaries of the supper. Well, that's it. That was a whole lot. I hope that you were encouraged by it. I'm going to invite Adam to come up now. And I do as he does. I want to give you a handful of things as he's coming up. I want to read one thing to you, one thing that I think was especially helpful. Um, come on up, Adam. Uh, just a way to conclude. Jonathan Landry Cruz wrote a little helpful book called What Happens When We Worship? Uh, any aspiring uh, man for elder ministry or otherwise, this is required reading in our church. From now on, they have to read it. It just came out about a year ago, but it's fantastic. This is what he says in the conclusion of a chapter called God Feasts With Us. This is what we get in the Lord's Supper, he writes. God sustaining our weak faith through our wilderness wondering. Think 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 3. Sustaining us on our journey from here to the true promised land. It's like a bit of heaven come to earth, although really it's like earth has gone up to heaven. The point is this. In the communing aspect of worship, God strengthens our faith by giving us a taste of that future promise of eternal fellowship with Him. And what the Israelites longed for as they read passages like Isaiah 25, we get in the here and now. The Lord's Supper is literally a taste of a final feast in heaven, what Revelation calls the marriage supper of the Lamb, the guests of which are those who are truly blessed. So think of this the next time you come to the table. This is God's greatest sign to you that you belong to Him. We commune with God today in the Lord's Supper as a sure sign that we will commune with Him on that last day and for eternity. And in the story of worship that God is telling, He calls us, cleanses us, and consecrates us, all so that we would belong to Him. And then He gives us proof that we truly do. He invites us to sit down and have a meal with Him. Isn't that amazing? That the God of the universe, through the Holy Spirit, would feast with us, invite us together as a church to enjoy such a thing. Utterly remarkable.